0: You know, I've been down here for so long that I almost completely forgot what personal hygiene really means. Not that I have a lot of options, considering I get to bathe and fire in fire and brimstone all the time. But for the rest of you, there's Bruges. Bruges is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra-gentle bristles, the brush redefines what it means to have super clean teeth. It's like that feeling you have when you just left the dentist. A fresh whole mouth clean every single day. Right now, our listeners get 15% off their total purchase with code POD15. Follow the link on our social media feeds and enter the code POD15 to get your exclusive discount and upgrade to your oral care routine. And if you're wondering why it's called brush. That's because it's got that U with the two dots on top of it. Just, just so we're clear there. And now, just to shame the podcast streamers a little, this is TellerHell. You may remember about a year or so ago that I expressed a certain disdain towards one of the most overused tropes in all of fiction, and I believe it went a little something like this. Look, I know I've been going on far too many tangents this episode, but of all the cliches there are in any form of media, the one where it was all a dream is probably the laziest, the most unoriginal, the most devoid of any creativity, and it's even an insult to the word crutch. And you know what else? I'd like to volunteer a lightning strike on this cliche. Do it! Somewhere down the line, I want to give this tired trope the attention it deserves. The trope of things being all just a dream has been around since works of fiction have ever been published. Not just on TV and movies, but I'm sure in books, video games, music, and, eh, what the hell, even some Bazooka Joe comics among the many, and yet, the so-called creative people out there seem to keep coming back to this well time and again. But why? Sometimes it's because they paint themselves in a corner when it comes to the stories they write with no viable way out of a given situation. Other times, it's simply to play a game of what if. Of course, if you're a work of science fiction, you could just blame everything on densely layered holograms and that'll be okay. But for those who want their fantasies to remain firmly grounded in the real world, The dream trope could be seen as either a break from the norm, or in some cases, a giant middle finger to those who were heavily vested in the story. And at this point, we should probably point out something before we continue. Originally, this episode was supposed to be a list of all the times when the dream trope went a little too far on television. Times when an audience of millions collectively said to themselves, you've gotta be kidding me, once the twist was revealed. But then, we realized that maybe we were a little too unfair to all the shows that managed to execute the trope properly, which, in our research, turned out to be surprisingly more often than we thought. So, instead of picking apart a couple of shows that missed the mark and making even the wildest dreams come false, we also realized that the day this episode is being uploaded is May 16th, 2021. And 35 years ago on this day, a batshit crazy plot twist wound up undoing an even battier, shittier, and crazier season of television. It was the most shocking shower scene since Janet Lee met her maker in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. When Patrick Duffy lathered up at the end of Dallas, millions of viewers wondered if they'd just seen a ghost. The question we must ask ourselves is, did the show truly take a turn for the worse because of this twist, or were the wheels already in motion for the show's downfall? There's no stopping us from drilling deep underground to see what oil strikes in Hell. And I know what you're thinking next. You can't take down a good TV show. Well, what you forget, fellow demons, is that it was this moment that turned a good TV show into the beginnings of a shell of what would eventually become its former self. Now, we've made it clear in the past that nothing is sacred here in Telehell. not even things that the common consensus would consider good in the world of television. We've proven that a few times with the likes of The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, the half-season where Coy and Vance Duke replace Bo and Luke on the Dukes of Hazzard, and, to an even lesser extent, Joni Loves Chachi. These are all things that, despite some negative connotations, still sees its fair share of defenders, and it's always important to give the benefit of the doubt whenever it's possible. That being said, if there's any one TV show that's perfectly okay to watch here in hell, unironically, it's this one. Why Dallas? Partly because the show highlights practically all of the sins that we try to highlight for you here as though it's the textbook definition. It's chock full of greed, sex, violence, drama, intrigue, and even the occasional laugh or two at the misfortune of some characters. And through most of its 14 season run, all those elements combined brought about the show's success, a type of success that some characters get to fight, kill, and hop into bed for sometimes. It was the show to watch in the 1980s that portrayed equal parts good and bad, what it meant to take what's yours. But officially, the real reason why Dallas is the one TV show down here in hell that we get to agree on is because of the one character on television who even the boss himself would be jealous of. The one and only J.R. Ewing. Oh, James, never tell the truth when a good lie will do. The day I started living by the rules you set down is the day the Dallas Cowboys will be back in the Super Bowl. This is a guy who's earned his power by taking no prisoners. A guy who was shot multiple times, including one famous time. A guy who was both lost, earned back, lost again, gained again, and through all the successes and failures, he still manages to come out on top almost every time. When he sneered at you, you knew there was trouble brewing. But not as much trouble as when he either smiled or acted even the least bit sincere. J.R. Ewing was the devil in the flesh. And god damn it, we loved and loved to hate both him and Larry Hagman for bringing such a doombringer to life. Hatching your silly little plots and your silly little heads, you're not good enough to wipe the spit off my boots. Of course, the show was more than just J.R. And in order for what we're about to talk about to make any sense, especially to some of our younger listeners out there, it's only fair that we try to tell you the rest of the story in as short a time as possible, or in the case of this particular subject, the story of the show's first eight seasons on the air in less than a week. Because we know we got some complaints about how long our last episode was. And you know who you are who complained and we get that some of you out there wish we got to the point a lot quicker. So now, we're going to try our best to condense the story of Dallas in as short a time as we can just to show that we can do it. Stopwatch, please. Since we're in hell, let's aim for no more than six minutes and 66 seconds. Ready? Off we go. Created by veteran TV writer David Jacobs and helmed for most of its run by two additional TV veterans, Bill Capiche and Leonard Katzman, Dallas began in 1978 as a five-part miniseries that detailed the saga between two families, the Ewings and the Barneses. The backstory was that in the 1930s, John Ross Jock Ewing had allegedly cheated his one-time partner, Willard Digger Barnes, out of his share of their company, Ewing Oil, and married Digger's only love, Eleanor, Miss Ellie Southworth, something that you'd actually have to find out more in a TV movie called Dallas the Early Years, which I recommend. Ellie's family were, in contrast to Jock, ranchers with great love for land and cattle. Following the marriage of Ellie and Jock, the Southworth family ranch, South Fork, became in the Ewing's home, where Jock and Miss Ellie raised three sons, J.R., Gary, and Bobby. When the show premiered as a miniseries, the Ewing and Barnes family's hatred hit one of its many peaks when the Barnes' daughter, Pamela, eloped with young Ewing's son, Bobby. Sort of a Romeo and Juliet story, but with oil. Jr. Unscrupulously and unhappily married to Sue Ellen Shepard, a former Miss Texas, was frequently at odds with Bobby, who had morals and integrity that Jr. Lacked. Middle son Gary was Miss Ellie's favorite son, as he displayed Southworth traits. However, Gary had been in conflict with both Jock and Jr. Since his childhood, and was dismissed as the weak link in the family. While still young, Gary married a waitress named Valene Clements, who produced their first heir, Lucy. Years prior to the series beginning, Jr. Had driven Gary and Valene off South Fork, leaving Lucy. to be raised by her grandparents. Gary and Valene would eventually be spun off to a place called Knott's Landing, but who cares about that? During the first episodes of the series, Lucy, Jock Ewing's granddaughter, by the way, is seen sleeping with ranch foreman Ray Krebs. Later, in season four, Ray was revealed as Lucy's uncle, an illegitimate Ewing's son through an extramarital affair that Jock Ewing had during World War II. The actor playing Ray, Steve Canale, had considered leaving the show, but to add some depth to his character, Larry Hagman suggested that writers created a plot where Ray becomes half-brother to J.R., Gary, and Bobby, noting his resemblance to actor Jim Davis, who played Jock Ewing. As far as the Lucy and Ray relationship went after the fact, let's just be glad that What happens in the South stays in the South, and the matter was never brought up again. For obvious reasons. There are only a couple in Arkansas. (laughs) Now, from here, I'm not going to rattle off the details of every single episode, because I know we don't have that kind of time. And let's face it, we all remember Dallas a little bit more for their many season-ending cliffhanger shows, starting at the end of the first miniseries season. Ready? (laughs) The original Dallas miniseries saw JR go up to the loft of a barn to talk to Pam, who had gone there to find her cousin, Jimmy, after Digger had fallen off the wagon at the annual Ewing Barbecue. JR, drunk, tries to convince her to tell Bobby not to leave the ranch. However, she doesn't want to be bothered, and in trying to escape JR, she falls off from the loft, landing square in her stomach, and by the way, she was pregnant at that time, so she wound up miscarrying the child and not being able to give birth throughout the rest of the series. Ow! In season two, Sue Ellen, who, by the way, had a drinking problem, had landed in a sanitarium, where she is pregnant with a child that she believes to be Cliff Barnes. She escapes from the sanitarium, gets drunk, and then gets into a severe car accident, putting her life and the baby's life in danger, as if the drinking didn't do enough of that already. The doctors deliver the baby, named John Ross Ewing III, who you really don't find out about until the Dallas reboot in 2012, but he's very small on delivery and not out of the woods yet. Nor is Sue Ellen, who, as the episode ends, is clinging to life. A distraught JR is watching his wife at the end of the episode in tears saying, No oh, she's got to leave. Season 3 may be the most famous cliffhanger the show ever had. After all, we needed to know who shot JR. <laughs> At the beginning of season four, we find out it was actually Sue Ellen's sister, Kristen, whom JR was having an affair with and was also allegedly carrying his child once it was revealed. So instead of her getting arrested, she gets exiled to Knott's Landing with blackmail money in tow, just in time to return to Dallas and wind up dead in the South Fork swimming pool in the season four cliffhanger. In season five, Jock Ewing dies in a helicopter crash, but Miss Ellie bounces back by marrying Clayton Farlow. Meanwhile, Cliff was then fired by his mother, Rebecca Barnes Wentworth, for running Wentworth Tool and Die into the ground. Cliff attempts suicide with an overdose of pills, and a guilt-ridden Sue Ellen rushes to his bedside as Cliff lays in a coma. Jr. tries to convince Sue Ellen that it was not anybody's fault but Cliff's for what happened, but Sue Ellen disagrees and says, If Cliff dies, I don't think I'll ever be able to marry. Fortunately, Cliff lives, and in season six, Sue Ellen gets drunk again after seeing Jr. in bed with his latest mistress. She gets into a car, and Ray Krebs' cousin, Mickey, tries to stop her, and both of them are involved in an accident in a car belonging to Jr. just outside of South Fork. Sue Ellen emerges with nothing worse than bruises, but Mickey is paralyzed from the neck down and in a coma. In the actual final episode of the season, Ray finds out that the driver of the other car was Walt Driscoll, who helped Jr. in a previous scheme. He also learned that Driscoll deliberately caused the accident, thinking that J.R. Was driving, so as a means of revenge for being put in jail by JR earlier in the year. Ray comes to South Fork late at night demanding answers from JR, who was not expecting to see him. JR is wondering what's going on. Ray says, I'm gonna kill you for what happened! And then JR throws a candle holder, which misses him entirely, but also knocks over another candle holder, which happens to have lit candles in it. The two of them fight, and South Fork starts to burn up. As the two of them fight, the smoke winds up filling up the house, and it also creeps into both John Ross III and Sue Ellen's bedrooms as they sleep. Sue Ellen was also given a sedative earlier in the day, so she does not wake up. Or at least we don't think she does at first. JR notices the fire and tries to break free of Ray, and finally knocking him out with a telephone. Runs upstairs to save his wife and son. Ray eventually recovers and runs, but JR is consumed by smoke and falls. Does JR survive the fire? You bet your ass he does, because there's still two more seasons to talk about. In the Season 7 cliffhanger, it's similar to Who Shot JR, except this time, Bobby gets shot just in time for him to recover in season eight, where Bobby, who recovered from his injuries, had been divorced from Pam for over a year and is now engaged to his childhood friend, Jenna Wade. He then decides that he wants to remarry Pam, and Pam agrees. The next morning, as Bobby is leaving Pam's house, someone drives a car at high speed towards Pam. Bobby shoves Pam out of the way, just in time for him to get hit by the car. We also see that it's actually Pam's sister, Catherine, who, by the way, has a very serious Fatal Attraction-esque crush towards Bobby for about two years. She wound up driving the car, and she is also killed when her car crashed into another car after running over Bobby. Bobby is rushed into the hospital where he later dies with his family at his bedside and that's where we are right now. Everybody got that? Good! Lord have mercy. Which brings us to the reason why we're here today the aftermath of that eighth season cliffhanger, and all the nonsense that happened the following year that ultimately led to this. Good morning. But before we get to what was on the screen, we have to discuss what happened behind the scenes, because it was what happened behind the scenes that ultimately led to this. Good morning. For starters, Patrick Duffy didn't want to do the show anymore, hence the whole getting hit by a car thing at the end of Season 8. But that wasn't all that happened by the end of the season. Incidentally, creative conflicts between executive producer Phil Capiche and producer Leonard Katzman led to Katzman leaving the show at the end of season eight. Although Katzman was still on the show as a creative consultant, which pretty much means he oversaw the scripts and made sure it didn't screw everything up too much, Capiche then decided to bring in a new production team. It may have been Patrick Duffy's departure that was seen as the primary reason for why things went south in the south for season nine, but that was really a smokescreen. It was the new production team that set the wheels in motion for what many considered to be one of the most nonsensical seasons any TV show would ever have. And we're going to dissect the fruits of that labor after the break. The <sighs> bells seem to say it's the end of the day and so we turn in one by one but a mother's work is never done when there's even one sheep gone astray. I can't believe you turned this whole thing over to JR. No, well, even J.R. wouldn't hurt any children. That's Ewing property. Sink the well and close down the orphanage. Jr., my son, take the charity tax write-off, and you'll make a bundle. Uh, On second thought, let those darling little orphans have anything they want. Reach for the stars. Reach up for. Telehel is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. Super orange, sneaky, spunky lemon. Yeah. Colorful candy shells, fruit flavors in the middle. Single-handed bite-sized candy coated skittles. Sharing, smiling, taste Sorry. Yeah. the rainbow, Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. This is a bit of a first for us here in TeleHelp. Normally, whenever we go over a show, we usually look at the pilot episode because sometimes only one episode of bad TV is enough to let us know how bad the show will wind up being, even if it ultimately improves over a short time. But this is the first, and I'm hoping, the last time that we are going to take a look at an entire season of otherwise good television. And knowing that we don't want to spend another eternity on one of our subjects, like we did last week, we hope you don't mind if we do a little condensing here in this case, especially since this one season of television had, and I'm not kidding here, 31 episodes. The biggest order of episodes that the series would have. To put that in perspective, most TV series managed to go from airing 39 episodes a season in the 1950s to, at most, 24 episodes a season by the 1980s. But because Dallas was so popular back then, CBS, the network that aired it, was only too eager to order more shows to satisfy their audience. But in the case of what we're about to go over, this could be one of those instances of, be careful what you wish for. All of the following takes place from September 27th, 1985 through May 16th, 1986, and considering the 31 shows that we're going to be looking over, I'm not even going to bother with historical context for this one. With that said, see if any of what I'm about to say makes any sense whatsoever. First, the Ewings gather at South Fork to mourn Bobby. Cliff Barnes and Jamie Ewing, who by the way is a cousin of the family through other stuff that we don't really have time to talk about, tries to comfort Pam, who blames herself for Bobby's death and frets that one day, their adopted son Christopher will blame her as well. Miss Ellie decides to bury Bobby on a green hill overlooking South Fork, near a tree house that Jock built for him. Gary returns to South Fork and provides a shoulder for Ellie to lean on, while Sue Ellen goes on a bender after Jr. insults her for not being there when Bobby said goodbye to everybody on his deathbed. Jr., please, I'm sorry. You're a terrible embarrassment, Sue Ellen. Nobody around here wants to see you. You're sinking, honey, and you're dragging me down with you. I can't allow that to go on. Not for my sake or my sons. Pam tries her best to explain what happened to Christopher, as JR does to John Ross III. Bobby's funeral is a small family event. Most of the family members move away and return to their homes, leaving JR alone with a casket to say a personal and emotional final goodbye to his brother. Don't do this to me, Bobby. An emotion that I'm sure felt real because Larry Hagman and Patrick Duffy were thick as thieves on the set from what I've heard. He begged Duffy to stay, but money talks, talent walks... Next, Sue Ellen has a sudden change of heart about leaving South Fork when she leaves Bobby's funeral. She tells her friend Dusty that it was a mistake for her to walk out and that she plans to go back. JR is not impressed with her return, and his harsh rejection once again turns her to alcohol. A bit of a running theme with her, by the way. Next, Bobby's will is read to the family, and it's discovered that he left his share of Ewing oil to Christopher in Pam's trust. JR can't believe that he may have to be in partnership with Pam, who, by the way, is still a Barnes. To Christopher my son. I leave the remainder of my wealth, which includes my 30% interest in Ewing Oil. Bobby's wish that until Christopher reaches the age of consent, his share of Ewing Oil is to be administered by his mother, Pamela Barnes Ewing." While Cliff wants nothing more than to arrange for Pan to sell the shares to him. Meanwhile in a bar, a drunk Sue Ellen attracts a man who volunteers to take her home, but then robs her of her Mercedes. It happens. The next morning, without a purse, identification, or any sense of herself, Sue Ellen wanders through an unfamiliar part of town, while a bag lady offers her a drink, but Sue Ellen disdainfully rejects the offer. And while the rest of the family go looking for Sue Ellen, Sue Ellen, then returns to the bag lady that she shunned, and now is sharing a bottle of cheap wine. Again, it happens. Well, I knew you'd come around, sweetie. Did you know each other? We all know each other. Hell, you're still. Next, Clayton and Miss Ellie intensify their search for Sue Ellen, who Ellie feels very strongly may be in trouble. Meanwhile, JR tries to buy Christopher's Ewing Oil shares, while Jeremy Wendell of Weststar Oil, Ewing Oil's main competitor, works with Cliff to convince Pam to sell her Ewing Oil shares to them. Pam is torn between wanting to do the right thing for Christopher and wondering what Bobby would want her to do. Clayton and Ellie find Sue Ellen. She's been moved from the city drunk tank to a detox ward. Her friend Dusty comes to the detox ward and gives Sue Ellen some gentle assurance. JR arrives, and he and Dusty, well, you know what Texans do. What the hell are you doing here? Take over my wife, you here? Settle down, say I'm warning you. Bastard, I ought to tear your head off. Oh. You stay away from me and you stay away from me. Is this the way you're helping her? Oh, is this the way you're helping her? You're a genius, you are. You get out of here. Actually, Sue Ellen is traumatized by all of this and wishes everything was over, Miss Ellie convinces JR to commit Sue Ellen to a sanitarium again. Miss Ellie begins to wonder if she, too, should sell her shares of Ewing Oil to Star, although she doesn't want the family business to come to an end. She also doesn't want to repeat of the struggle for control that tore Bobby and JR apart after Jock Ewing's death. Sue Ellen discovers that she has no choice but to join an Alcoholics Anonymous program at the clinic. Clayton warns Dusty that his involvement with Sue Ellen is poorly timed, but Dusty seems very. Determined to make it work this time. Sue Ellen is tempted when an attendant at the clinic offers her a drink for a price. Wait a minute. Who the hell would offer somebody alcohol at a detox clinic? Never mind. Although she's tempted, she ferociously rings for someone to come help her. Cliff continues to pressure Pam to sell to Wendell. Unable to deal with the business of the decisions she needs to make, Pam runs from the house and gets quite a shock when she runs into one Mark Grayson, who, we should mention, some people watching actually thought was Bobby returning prematurely, considering both he and the actor playing Mark had similar hairstyles. Well, one of us better say something. (laughs) I don't know whether to laugh or cry. It's okay. Tell me I'm not dreaming. Pam is stunned at seeing Mark. Mark tells Pam that there's no cure for his blood disease, which I'm sure happened somewhere in previous seasons, I don't know, but the important thing is he's in remission. He tells her that he staged his death in order to spare her and search for a cure. JR is annoyed when a private investigator doesn't find any dirt on his cousin Jack, who, let's pause for a second, we should point out, was played by an actor named, and I'm not making this up, Dak Rambo. That's right, Dak, D-A-C-K. Not Jack, not Zack, and not the Lego Maniac. Dak Rambo. A name so ridiculously macho that I'm honestly surprised it was never used as a name in the Space Mutiny episode of MST3K. So much so that for the rest of this summary, any time the name Jack is mentioned, we're just going to do our duty and place in one of these many names whenever we mention the name... Jack Rambo, Slab bulkhead. This'll get fun real quick, I'm sure. Meanwhile, Cliff gets two weeks to firm up Pam's and Dak Rambo, Ridge, Large Meat, and their commitment to sell Ewing Oil shares to Wendell. Sue Ellen gets a report on her future and decides to commit totally to rehab. Good for her. Meanwhile, Cliff and Jamie are stunned when Pam stops by with Mark, while Ray cautions. Dak Rambo! Hunt speed junk. Not to trust JR. Ms. Ellie asks Dusty to stay away from Suellen until she's fully recovered. Sue Ellen vows to beat her addiction even when she learns that JR refuses to help her because, as they all say, it works if you're worth it, and you're worth it. Meanwhile, Dak Rambo! Butch Deadlift! is awakened by an intruder who steals his passport. Mark attacks JR after he discovers JR sent Pam in a wild goose chase looking for him and vows to ruin Ewing Oil. Next, the annual Oil Baron's Ball, where JR nominates Bobby posthumously for a Man of the Year award. With apologies to those who may not understand my change of heart, I cannot, I will not, sell Christopher's share of Ewing Oil to Westar. While Cliff learns the break-in at Dak Rambos! Bold big flank. And wonders if he has to hide. Dusty tells Clayton that Ellie is going to Cheyenne, Wyoming for his divorce hearing, but plans to come back for Sue Ellen. Mark explains to somebody named Kenderson that he decided to re-enter Pam's life because she was in trouble. He says that he's been honest with her about his condition. Sue Ellen discusses her parents and JR with a therapist who wants to concentrate on her future. Sue Ellen's mother arrives for a short stay at South Fork, while Ellie tells Clayton that Sue Ellen's mother has been nothing but trouble for Sue Ellen and everybody else. Mark agrees to meet with Wendell to discuss his offer. An unseen photographer takes pictures of Jenna and... Dak Rambo! Lint chest hair. Ellie advises Ray to make his own decision about selling his shares. While Dak Rambo! Flint Ironstag he tells Ray that he's attracted to Jenna Wade, but Ray warns that it'll take a while for her to get over Bobby. After all, she was the other love of his life apparently. Ray also reminds Dak Rambo! Bolt Vanderhuge! that their third option with the sale is to simply side with whatever Miss Ellie decides to do. Meanwhile, Sue Ellen's mother tells Sue Ellen that she plans to stay in Dallas to help her regain her life. Pam explains to JR that she decided to take Wendell's offer because it seemed better long-term for Christopher, while JR feels defeated. Miss Ellie tells Clayton that she decided to sell to Wendell. Miss Ellie goes to Ewing Oil and hears JR talking aloud to Bobby, even though he's clearly not there. I mean, you know. And she's also disturbed to hear JR say that he's taking John Ross III and leaving Dallas. Now, here is where it starts to get unhinged. And keeping in mind, we're only on the seventh episode of this season, so I'm going to do as much as I can to speed things up. First, Miss Ellie and Pam make their final decisions on the West Star offer. I'm not hanging around. I'm going to be working here right by your side every day of the week. You can't be serious. Ray and his wife Donna get bad news about their pregnancy. Sue Ellen continues to progress in her recovery while Dak Rambo, Thick fast oozes Jenna Wade even further. Next, Ray and Donna investigate options to deal with their baby's condition. Dusty claims he's staying in Dallas. JR immediately finds a way to rid himself of Pam. Cliff wants Jamie back while we meet a new character, Angelica Nero, an international shipping magnate who happens to be whining and dining the town's local oil men. For what, we don't know, but we'll find out as things go on. Angelica then attends a South Fork rodeo, while Sue Ellen's mother tries to keep her away from Dusty. Meanwhile, Jr. offers Jack Rambo, blast hard cheese, a job at Ewing Oil. Bray's wife Donna is rushed to the hospital, and both her and her baby's life is at risk. Cliff Barnes tries to repair his relationships with Jamie and Pam, while Sue Ellen renews the custody battle with JR, who's also busy discovering Angelica's past. John Ross III runs away as the custody fight comes to a close. Angelica tries to rush her deal with Ewing Oil, while JR continues to investigate her motives. JR appeals his loss of John Ross III's custody, Donna and Raid deal with the loss of their baby, and a detective that JR hired is kidnapped and used by Angelica to further her own ventures, while Sue Ellen and her mother argue over her future. JR then hopes to trick Suon into giving up custody of John Ross III. Jenna breaks things off with DAK Rambo. Buff drink lots. Pam wants a vacation with Mark, Clayton makes a deal without Miss Ellie's knowledge, Clayton shields Miss Ellie from his financial pinch while Ray and Donna move into South Fork. And somewhere in the middle of all this mess, DAK Rambo TRUNK SLAM chest goes missing! Then we get into some crazy stuff involving an Emerald Mind in South America and other people that we really don't have enough time to go across, while Dak Rambo Punch Rock Grind is still missing and his presence is needed more than ever on South Fork. Meanwhile, Sue Ellen starts working for a living, probably for the first time ever. The search for... Dak Rambo! Dirk Hardback! takes new urgency as Jamie is near death for some reason. Meanwhile, Donna starts working with those suffering from Down Syndrome, a noble cause, and Angelica reveals why... Dak Rambo! Rip Steakface! Slate Slabrock! Crud Bone Meal! is so important to her. Jamie eventually recovers at the hospital. JR recruits somebody named Marley Stone into the Merino Steel, which is the company that Angelica owns, while Clayton's problems ease, not knowing that Miss Ellie is the source. Ham arranges for a visit to Mark's Columbian Emerald Mine. Yes, a show about oil is definitely keyed up on Emerald Mines now. JR and other oil associates continue their plot to set up Pam, while Angelica grows unhappy over the profit-sharing arrangement for the Merinos deal. Mark feels that he and Pam may not have a future after all, even though they do have similar haircuts to previous husbands. Pam gets to Columbia, Sue Ellen's newfound stability makes JR reevaluate her, Clayton finds out Miss Ellie bailed him out, Donna confides to Miss Ellie that her baby would have been born with special needs, while Jenna becomes increasingly despondent over Bobby's death and it only took half the season to do. JR and local authorities try to locate Pam, who disappeared in Columbia. While Dak Rambo Rips, lag, succumbs to somebody else's wiles. Mark and Cliff work to secure Pam's release. Jenna sinks deeper into depression. Donna grows close to a child with special needs. And JR shows an increasingly active interest in reconciling with Sue Ellen. While Jenna begins to realize she can't deal with her grief over Bobby alone, Pam then wants to explore the Emerald Mine. Raid takes an interest in a deaf foster child named Tony. JR grows more suspicious of Angelica and the Marinos deal. Pam must then defend her job at Ewing Oil, while Lucy comes back and gets married, all to Jenna's dismay. Ray continues to grow fond of an orphan boy who's hard of hearing, while Jr. and Jack Rambo... Crystal McThornebody. ...are unaware of the danger that they're in in the Martinique Conference, while Angelica disappears in the aftermath of an assassination attempt. Jenna plans to leave Dallas, Ray talks to Donna about adopting another child, Pam makes a decision regarding her employment at Ewing Oil. a proposal to sell Christopher's 30% of Ewing Oil. That's right. To me? Right again. Why, after all this time? After all you fought for? The fight's just not important anymore. Good night, JR. And having regained control of Ewing Oil, JR sets his sights firmly on Suellen. Ray and Donna start adoption procedures. Oh, uh, hold on, I gotta take this. Yeah. You want me to go even faster, huh? Okay, but I am almost at the end of the episode. All right, all right, no need to burn my ear off. God, the boss wants everything done so fast these days, I just, whatever. Okay, speed up music. JR tries to get a bigger piece of the Marinos deal, Ray's manslaughter conviction hampers the adoption proceedings, Pam's travel companion Matt makes an emerald strike, while Angelica comes back to the United States. Cliff thinks that JR has set up he and an oil cartel for failure in the Marinos deal, while Donna and Ray work on Tony's reluctance to be adopted. Jamie fears a new Barnes-Ewing feud is brewing, while Angelica makes a beeline for Dallas to make sure everything continues to go according to plan. The cartel is ready to join Cliff to battle JR, while Pam and Mark make wedding preparations. Yes, they're getting engaged now. Missed that part? So I? Angelica moves forward with her revenge scheme. Ray and Donna Krebs meet more obstacles in their quest to adopt Tony. New ranch hand Ben Stevers prompts suspicion from Clayton and Punk. I don't know who Punk is, but I'm sure he's a good guy. JR gets valuable information against Mark Grayson, but finds Ewing Oil in danger, while Ray and Donna get a hearing in their adoption case. Angelica gets closer to her revenge, and finally, JR pledges himself anew to Sue Ellen, now that she's newly sober, while Angelica brings her revenge plot to fruition. You fool, you're as good as dead, and so is Jack if he isn't dead already. Get her out of here. All right, Miss Nero. I just wanted to little, know it's too late. Let's take a little elevator ride and I'll tell you all about the Miranda decision. It's too late, JR! It's too late! Causing things to blow up all over the place, including one of JR's offices that Sue Welland accidentally steps in. JR? On, which was actually meant for Dak Rambo. Roll Fizzlebee. No, I'm happy to say that I'm alive and. Oh, God. Jamie, Jamie! Oh! Oh, no! 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 Let me go! While well, Ray and Don I learned if they'll be allowed to adopt Tony, Pam and Mark are married. But then she awakens to find the now dead Bobby in her shower. Why? Because everything I mentioned was all just a goddamn dream. Uh, oxygen. Sorry, oxygen. And now you know why. We only cover one episode of television at a time. Some questions remain though. Why did Patrick Duffy come back? And more importantly, was this truly the beginning of the end for Dallas? The answer to all these questions and possibly a few other ones can be best explained right after I grab an oxygen tank and bring it down to our nine circles. I'm amazed hell even has oxygen tanks. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! The easy answer to the first question is that Patrick Duffy and former showrunner Leonard Katzman were both given boatloads of money to come back to South Fork. Combine that with continuing stories about power in the oil industry and greed is very much a given factor on both sides. Both men came back in an effort to restore some of the status quo that was lost during the season. A kind of status quo that felt like heresy compared to the rest of the show's eight years on the air by that point. As for the actual shower ending itself, many fans of the show felt it was a bigger middle finger than the entirety of season nine itself. Even though Duffy's return to the show practically painted the show's producers and writers in a corner for having to undo the entire season's storyline. Regardless of necessity, however, if you were a fan who invested all of that time into watching a story that not only was ultimately deemed pointless, but you'd change the channel in wrath and never return which is pretty much how the remaining five years of the series panned out over time. Even though there were still some good moments here and there, the show would eventually become a shell of its former glory, sometimes in increasingly cartoonish ways. Dallas's final years were not the same show even the most ardent fans fell in love with. To them, it became about as big a fraud as Cliff Barnes 90% of the time. And the only reason why we're not giving this season of television a clean sweep here is because even though lust, violence, and treachery is the show's bread and butter, the fact that the whole thing turned out to be a dream wound up putting a lot of established storylines. Not just season 9s, but if you really want to be theoretical, possibly the entire series to that point in limbo. Resulting in a clean slate the following year. One that, because of Duffy's return, also meant that, unfortunately, there would no longer be a need for. Jack Rambo, Max Roid Rage, Pork Shoulderman, <laughs> Pearl Big Sweat, Clint Kettlebells, yes. Burpee McCross Hunter oh. Battle Pants, Luke Rockhole, Knob Knockwurst, Bulk Bench Flap Speed Run! Rusty Railing Kill, Cody McBoatface. Uh, no, oh, wait, no, no, no got nothing there. That should be all of them, I hope. The Dallas Dream Season earns five out of nine circles of telehell. And as we just said. The show did manage to largely move on after the season took place, but because of how polarizing everything turned out to be, the show's inevitable decline was more of a slow drip over time. After years of trading off between being both the number one and two shows of about five seasons, the show's dream season wound up slipping things to sixth place. Then 11th the following year, 21st the next, 30th the next, 43rd the next, And then finally, 61st place in its final original season. But not without going out with a bang in the series' final original episode in 1991. Besides, what's the difference? I still don't have anybody. I'm the same as the first time I met you. Then why don't you go ahead and kill yourself? And send you back to heaven, a failure? (laughs) You'll never become an angel. angel. (laughs) What makes you think I'm... But that story is going to have to wait another day in the Metroplex. Next time on Telehell. When trying to explain life at a young age, don't forget to explain the parts of life that actually need explaining. Like adulthood. The network decided not to make this show, not to go forward with it. And when people found out about it recently, they've been pretty upset that it didn't go forward. But it wouldn't have been the same show. I don't think people would have liked it. Until then, if it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Podcast.